chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we will read the whole chapter. This is the word of the Lord. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, an house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon, with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought for us the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also we're made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we, just, we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead." And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his inspired word. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 19 through 21. And I, I don't think I could introduce these verses better than the Puritan Andrew Gray did when he preached on them in the 17th century. He said, We have excellent and glorious news from a far country to declare unto you today. We have excellent tidings from the court of heaven to make unto you today. They are these in short. Heaven desires to be reconciled to earth. The persons of the blessed Trinity desire to be reconciled to you. And this is the thing that we are to preach unto you as the ambassadors of Christ, that you would be reconciled to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the outworking and the demonstration of God's desire to be reconciled with the world. And the gospel of Jesus Christ will be our ultimate focus this morning, but, but not just the gospel, objectively speaking. There's been a tendency in our day to speak of the gospel strictly as what Christ has done in history. Now, that's obviously essential. There would be no gospel if Jesus didn't actually take on human flesh in reality. There would be no gospel if Jesus didn't actually live a perfect life in reality. There would be no gospel if Jesus didn't die on a cross and and rise again for our justification in reality. These are not just stories that we believe. These are actual objective events that happened in history. And if they didn't actually happen in history, then we could say with the Apostle Paul that our faith is in vain and we are still dead in our sins because there would be no hope of reconciliation between us and God. Our hope is rooted in what God has done in Christ in reality. But that being said, the gospel is more than simply the events that happened in history. The gospel is also subjective in a sense. The gospel continues to be worked out on the earth to this day. God is continuing to reconcile the world to himself, even now. I think Luke implies this in his introduction to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is like the Gospel of Luke, part two. It's, it's a continuation of what Luke had written. And so when Luke introduces his second part of his gospel, he says in verse one, the former treatise I have made, O Theophilus, that's who he was writing to, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what he's saying is, Everything I wrote before, everything I wrote in my gospel account, that was the beginning of what Jesus did. The implication there 
is that Jesus is continuing to work even after his death and resurrection. That was just the beginning. Jesus is continuing to work. He's continuing his work of redemption, even now. And how is he continuing his work of redemption? He's not being sacrificed again and again like some people believe. He's offered the perfect sacrifice once and for all. There's no need for another sacrifice. But he continues his work of redemption by applying his work, the work that he completed. He applies that work to his people by his Holy Spirit. That's the gospel as well. The gospel is also Christ overcoming all the sins and all the doubts and all the unbelief of our hearts. And the gospel is also him bringing us into a life of godliness and a fellowship with God. It doesn't happen perfectly in this life, but it begins here. And so what begins in us is a life of faith. And by faith, we're no longer enemies of God, but we have peace with God. And that's what this text is about. That's what reconciliation is. It's enemies becoming friends. It's enemies being brought into peace with one another. And this invitation of reconciliation remains open for you today. This is that glorious news that Andrew Gray mentioned. God invites you to be reconciled to him. Why is this so glorious? Why do we need to be reconciled to God? First of all, because we all, by nature, are against God. We are all, by nature, enemies of God. And this is an important place to begin, because a lot of times, those who have yet to come to Christ, they don't realize that they are enemies of God. The natural man has a tendency to think that everything is good with the state of his soul. He doesn't realize the seriousness of his situation. So many unbelievers have convinced themselves that they are better than they actually are. They don't realize that they're in such a stark opposition to God. They sometimes even think that God is showing them favor at times. But the reality is, everything they are, not just everything they do, everything they are is against God. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, your heart loves wickedness. You delight in it. You glory in your sin. Your mind is at enmity with the law of God. And you rebel against God's authority and rule over your life. And the Bible says, ultimately, you want to be your own God. And you will follow your heart to destruction. 
The sinner is against God in all that they are. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 3. In that chapter, he kind of summarizes what the Bible teaches about the nature of sinful and fallen men. And he, he quotes an abundance of texts throughout the Bible. Um, so let's, let's look at that text. Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 9 through 18. And uh, what, what verse 9 does is it kind of gives us the context. What Paul is doing is he's trying to prove that both Jews and Gentiles, that is, both Jews and non-Jews, so everyone in the world is under sin. And he says in verse 10 through uh, 18, as it's written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Paul's description of who we are by nature. That's Paul's description of the sinful, fallen man. And one aspect of of the nature of sinful man is worth looking at here in particular. Um, in, In verse 13, Paul quotes from Psalm 5, and it says there that, their inward part is very wicked, very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. A sepulcher is like a grave or a tomb. So God sees the mouth of a sinner as nothing more than a way for him to expose the wickedness of his heart. Think about that picture here. As, as humans, We have this aversion to death. We have this natural inclination, it seems, that death is unnatural. And so we try not to think about it. We try not to talk about it. We avoid the subject whenever possible. And so what better way to describe the sinful state of man than by appealing to the most unappealing aspect of our existence. Death. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says. This is the picture the Bible gives us of our spiritual state apart from Christ. We are dead in our sins. And both death and sin are completely contrary to who God is. God is righteousness and God is life. So by nature, we are against the very nature of God. We are death 
and he is life. We get a picture of what Paul is talking about here in in John chapter 11. There we read of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And before he does, everyone is around the tomb and, and they're all crying because he had died. And Jesus himself weeps because his friend had died. And then Jesus turns to Martha and says, Take ye away the stone. Open the grave. And Martha, understandably, says, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he had been dead for four days. Could you imagine what opening that tomb would look like? Think about that desert heat cooking his flesh. That body rotting in the grave for four days would literally be the smell of death. They all probably cringed at the thought of opening that tomb. But this is the picture that Scripture gives to us of our sinful state. Our unconverted mouths are like that open grave exposing the wickedness and death of our hearts. All that we are, apart from Christ, is in opposition to God. He is light, and we are darkness. He's a God of righteousness, and we are nothing but sinfulness. He's a God of life, and we are nothing but death. But as terrible as this is, there's something even worse. Not only is the sinner against God, but God is against the sinner. And this makes sense, because what fellowship can light have with darkness? What kind of communion can life have with death? What kind of communion can God have with sinners in their natural state? Psalm 5 is is helpful here, the, the psalm that Paul is quoting from. Psalm 5 says that evil or sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. It also says that God hates all workers of iniquity and that God abhors the deceitful man. Psalm 11 says the same thing. So this modern evangelism that that says that God loves everybody unconditionally is a lie. God hates not only the sin, but he hates the sinner. Jesus says in John chapter 3, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The wrath of God abides against the sinner. 
So not only is the sinner against God, but God is against the sinner. And this is important to understand. Because this is what makes the grace of God so amazing. This is what makes the offer of reconciliation so glorious. That there exists such an opposition between God and the sinner. And yet God gives to us a way to be reconciled with him. If we were all condemned to hell, based on what we've just seen, it would make sense. God created man good, but man chose to rebel against God. And in doing so, we became opposed to God in our very nature. And God became opposed to man. So it would just make sense for God to condemn us and to forget about us. But by his grace, out of his free love for his people, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. So we've seen our need for reconciliation. Now let's consider the way of reconciliation. And we see from our text in in verse 18 and in verse 19 and in verse 21 that God reconciles us to himself by Jesus Christ. In verse 21 in particular explains how this reconciliation happens. It says, for he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's Christ who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And there's a lot of theology packed into that one statement. So we're going to spend some time unpacking it a little bit. But essentially what we have here is the theological basis of the gospel. This verse has been said to present the rock of our reconciliation. If we try to build or or base our reconciliation with God on any other foundation, it'll crumble. You can't be reconciled to God by your works. I don't care how good you think you are or how not evil you think you've been, you cannot merit for yourself reconciliation with God. The basis of your reconciliation with God must be on the rock of the work of Christ. We must base the whole of our reconciliation, the whole of our salvation, the whole of our peace with God on this Doctrine, that the perfect and sinless person of Jesus Christ was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is called double imputation, or sometimes it's called the great exchange. What we see here is that Christ takes our sin upon himself 
And he gives to us his righteousness by faith. This is the core of the gospel. If you deny this truth, you deny the work of Christ in the gospel itself. This is the way of reconciliation. This is the way sinners can have peace with God. We need two things in order to be reconciled to God. First, our sins have to be forgiven. Sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. And therefore, we cannot dwell in the presence of God in our sin. But second, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So not only do we need our sins forgiven, we need to be made holy. We need to obey God perfectly. And Christ accomplishes both of these things for us in his passive and in his active obedience. In his passive obedience, Christ subjects himself to all the pains and miseries of this life. He submits himself to the curse of the law that we deserve. And he bears the wrath of God in our place on the cross. It was our sin that deserved to be punished. We should be the ones to bear God's wrath. But Christ steps in as our substitute and becomes the embodiment of of our sin. He becomes sin for us, even though he knew no sin. He took our place and was treated as a sinner for us. Isaiah chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the wrath that we deserve in his passive obedience. And what a perfect death and sacrifice this was. If you're in Christ, your every sin is blotted out. Appeal to his death when Satan accuses you or when guilt overwhelms your soul. Appeal to Christ's death. He paid the price on your behalf in his passive obedience. And in his active obedience, he subjects himself to the law of God in our place. And he fulfills it perfectly on our behalf. 
all those thousands of laws in the Old Testament, he was made subject to them all. If he failed to uphold even one of them, we would still be in our sins. We saw how wicked we are by nature earlier. There is none righteous. No, not one. Paul tells us we are all under sin. And so it would be impossible for us to uphold the law. It would be impossible for us to obey God perfectly because of the weakness of our flesh. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Christ fulfills the righteous, the, the righteous requirements of the law in our place because we couldn't do it. He merits righteousness for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. He obeys God perfectly for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. And so we see the passive and the active obedience of Christ. He died in our place to bear the punishment of our sins. And he lived on earth in our place to merit righteousness on our behalf. So that by faith, our sins get imputed to him so that we could be forgiven by God. And then he imputes his righteousness to us that we could stand justified and and righteous before God. That's why it's called double imputation. Our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. But now imputation is one of those words that tends to get thrown around in uh, sermons and in theological conversation. But it's not just a fancy theology word. It's, it's an important concept. It's, it's the foundation of the gospel, as we're seeing. So I want to make sure we understand what it is. It, it, it is a word that you'll come across in your Bible reading. Uh, for instance, we see it in verse 19 of our text. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. It's also the theme of Romans chapter 4, where Paul proves that justification comes by faith alone and not by works of the law. He says in, in that chapter, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And and to prove this, this beautiful doctrine, he quotes from Psalm 32, and he says, 
even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So three times in these verses, Paul uses the Greek word that means to impute. Now, in some translations, it's, it's translated to count or to credit at times, and that helps us to, to understand what it means. Uh, a, a good way to think about it is like this. So I, I work at a bank, and people come in every so often wanting to make a deposit into someone else's account, an account that they don't own. And when they make that deposit, in the eyes of the law, the money they deposited into that account now belongs to that account owner. So it, 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 it was deposited into their account. Now it belongs to them. And that's what happens when we come to Christ by faith. The righteousness of Christ is deposited into our account. And on the flip side of that, our negative balance, our debt, all the consequences of our sin get deposited or transferred into Christ's account. That's the rock of reconciliation. That by faith, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It's transferred to our account. And our sins are imputed to him. They're transferred to his account. That's the rock of reconciliation. And this is important. Your debt, your negative balance, your sins need to be paid. Your sins demand the punishment of God. And apart from Christ, you will stand before God as an enemy. And he will demand that you pay the penalty for your sin. Every lie you've ever told, every prideful thought, every act of fornication, every lustful glance, every broken Sabbath, every unnatural desire, every blasphemous word, every sin you've ever committed. God will demand you to be punished for. Look at verse 10 of our text. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. This is why we preach reconciliation. Because we know that judgment is coming. And for those with no advocate in Christ, 
by faith. It'll be a terrible day. That's why God has given to certain men the ministry of reconciliation. It's so that they would preach this message of reconciliation to all men in his place. You see, the minister, the minister of God, is an ambassador of God. An ambassador is someone who is authorized to speak on behalf of another party. So, so for instance, the, the United States government sends ambassadors to other countries to discuss foreign policy. Now, an ambassador is the only person authorized to speak on behalf of the country. So if I were to go to another country and try to make a deal on behalf of the United States government, they wouldn't take me seriously. Not because I'm not a citizen of this country, but because I don't have authority to speak on behalf of our country. And so the minister is an ambassador for Christ. He is authorized to speak on behalf of Christ. But that doesn't mean he could say or, or do anything he wants to. He's, he's limited in his authority. He can only say or do what he's been authorized to say or do. And the minister is bound to preach from the word of God. I, I'm not a minister yet, but... Uh, that's why I can only speak where the Bible speaks. I, I can explain what parts of the Bible mean, but whenever I make a claim, I have to be able to say, turn in your Bible here and see where this is taught. That's important. So Paul says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. And he's talking about ministers here. You, you can trace his thought back a couple of chapters, but you can, you can see it clearly in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. He says, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled with God. So the role of a minister is to stand where Christ stood, calling all men to come to Christ by faith. Just as Jesus preached unconditionally to all people, come ye unto me and I will give you rest. The minister stands in his place now and he says, Go ye unto him, and he will give you rest. He will give you peace. He will reconcile you to God. You might be his enemy now, but come to him by faith, and he will make you righteous. He will forgive your sin, and he will make you not just a friend, but a son of God. What glorious news. What a beautiful gospel that is. 
But before we move on to our last point, I want us to consider the importance of attending church regularly and faithfully, given what we just read about the role of a minister here. We attend church in order to hear what God would have us hear. God speaks through his ministers in his church on a regular basis. To neglect listening to God's ministers is the same as neglecting listening to God himself. The minister preaches in Christ's stead. He preaches in place of Christ. So don't neglect the preaching of the word by the ministers of God. If we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we can ask, why did God appoint for us ministers in the church? And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 says, it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body. So faithful church attendance is a means of sanctification. It's a means of growing into mature Christians. Being exposed to regular, faithful preaching by a divinely appointed ambassador of Christ is essential for the building up of your faith. Don't neglect the church. But we'll close with our last and final point. So we've, we've seen the need for reconciliation. It's by nature, we are enemies of God, and God is our enemy. And we've seen the way of reconciliation. It's that God makes Christ to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he publishes this invitation of reconciliation by his ministers. But let's consider briefly the time for reconciliation. Not every translation says it this way, but the, the King James Version says in verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. You have this message of reconciliation published before you right now. You have someone pleading with you right now for you to be reconciled with God. And the invitation is open. God is pleading with you right now. Be reconciled to me by faith. But that won't always be the case. There will come a day when you will hear your last invitation to come to Christ. There will come a day when you will hear your last sermon from an ambassador of God to come to Christ. There will be a day when you will lose your opportunity to come to Christ by faith, to be reconciled to God, to be made at peace with God. Maybe that's today. 
maybe this is the last sermon you will ever hear. Maybe this is the last invitation that God will make to you to be reconciled to him. We don't know. But what we do know is that you ought to seek the Lord while he may be found. You ought to come to Christ while he's still sending representatives before you to preach this gospel of reconciliation. How can you accept this gospel? It's only by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Submit yourself to him and you will be saved from the wrath to come. Don't remain his enemy. Don't die a rebellious sinner before him. Don't cling so tightly to your sin that you refuse to be made at peace with such a gracious God who had no reason to offer reconciliation to you other than his own free love. The man that would rather be at peace with his sin than at peace with God will have to bear the wrath and the curse of God for himself. But peace is offered to you this day. God is offering eternal life to you this day. Receive Christ and in him all of his benefits. The invitation is open to you. And so I pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Amen.